And a huge welcome here to tonight's 5 by 15. And I'm incredibly pleased to be able to introduce my friend and someone I admire so hugely, Jung Chang, who is joining us from Rome. Um, Jung, I'm sure, is familiar to all of you who have joined in. I hope she is. She is an author and a quite extraordinary storyteller as well as a historian. She, she first came to prominence with her amazing book, Wild Swans, which charted her life growing up through the Cultural Revolution. Jung became a barefoot doctor, a steel worker, even an electrician before getting to Cambridge and actually becoming the first person in China, I think this is right, to ever gain a PhD. While Swans, by the way, went on to sell a staggering 13 million copies. Jung followed that up with a 10-year project on the life of Mao, the unknown story, and it certainly was very unknown to me, and then the Empress Dao Jazisi. But her latest book, which I think she came to in a quite interesting way, which we'll probably hear about, is Little Sister, sorry, Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister, which is the absolutely gobsmacking story of the Soong sisters, who really were just as much of the architecture of China as indeed all the famous men of the 20th century were. They were there behind the scenes influencing things and it reads like a thriller. It's completely gripping and quite unputdownable. Now, this is Jung's debut appearance on Zoom and I'm incredibly happy that she's chosen us to help launch her paperback edition of this book. Um, lots of you who have signed on tonight have already bought the book. And if you haven't, well, I urge you to do so because it's a quite amazing read. It really does fill you in with a lot of gaps. So tonight's a very simple format. I'm going to hand over to Jung in a minute. And she's going to talk and show you some extraordinary photographs for the next 25 minutes. And then she and I will talk and then we'll bring in some of your questions. So please put them down in the Q&A box. And um, Jung is in Rome, as I said, and I'm incredibly happy to be introducing her tonight to all of you. So over to you, Jung. Thank you very much, um, <laughs> Rosie. Although I got my doctorate from York University, um, not Cambridge, but thank you. Um, now, thank you very much. I'm I'm very pleased to um, to um, to talk today. Um, but unfortunately, I can't see you. But uh, we'll we'll all wait for the day when we can see each other. Now, um, I. Um, I think before I get on to the story of the three sisters, I just like to say a few words about how I became a writer and how I came to write this book. Um, I loved writing when I was a child, but when I was growing up in China in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, China was under the tyranny of Mao and nearly all writers were persecuted, you know, sent to the gulag, you know, some were even executed and driven to suicide. And even writing for oneself was dangerous. I remember writing my first poem on my 16th birthday in 1968, I, in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. I was lying in bed 
polishing my poem when I heard the door banging. The red guards had come to raid our flat. And if they had seen my poem, I would get into trouble and my whole family would get into trouble. So I had to quickly rush to the bathroom to tear up my poem and flush it down the toilet. And that ended my first venture in writing. But the desire to write never left me. And in the following years, I was exiled to the age of the Himalayas and worked as a peasant. And then I became a steel worker and an electrician. When I was um, spreading manure in the paddy fields, and when I was checking electricity supplies on top of the electricity poles, I was always writing in my head with an imaginary pen, <clears throat> but I couldn't put pen to paper. And then in 1976, Mao died and China began to change. And in 1978, I became one of the first group of Chinese students to come and study in Britain. Um, then in Britain, I, I could then write, but at that moment, the desire to write left me because I had come to a, a completely different world. It was like landing on Mars. Everything was different. So I just wanted to spend every minute soaking up, I mean, you know, the atmosphere, the life, the everything of this new world. And to write for me was to look backward and inward into a past I wanted to forget all about. And so, um, so I didn't write, I just enjoyed life. You know, I must be the first Chinese to walk into an English pub because when we came to Britain, we were given very strict rules. And one particular one was don't go into a British pub um, because the Chinese word for pub was is jiuba which in those years suggested somewhere indecent with nude women gyrating. And so we were forbidden to go to the pub. And, but of course I was torn with curiosity. And I, one day I mm, sneaked out of the college. I darted across the road. I went to, I pushed the door of a pub open and I walked in and of course I saw nothing of the kind, no nude women gyrating, only some older men sitting there drinking beer. Now I was rather disappointed. So I was enjoying life and I didn't want to write. Um, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, my father died and my grandmother, my beloved grandmother died who had brought us up. And um, their death remained the most painful spot in my heart. So I didn't want to think about all this. And then 10 years after I came to Britain, my mother came to London to stay with me. And for the first time, she told me the stories of her life and the stories of um, my grandmother. And once my mother started, she couldn't stop. She stayed with me for six months and she talked every day. 
And when I was out working, she talked into a tape recorder. And when I was listening to my mother, and I kept saying to myself, I've got to write all this down. And then I, I realized that my mother seemed to know that I had cherished this unspoken dream of becoming a writer. She was helping me to fulfill this dream. So after my mother left, I sat down, I transcribed her tapes, and I started writing Wild Swans. After Wild Swans was published, in 1991, and I, I became a writer, and I wrote my next book with my husband, John Halliday, um, a biography of Mao, and then I wrote a biography of Empress Dowager Tsushi. And after the biography of Empress Dowager Tsushi was published in 2013, I was thinking about my next book, uh, there was a question that was constantly in my mind when I was writing, when I was writing the story, the biography of the Empress Dowager. Um, I wondered what happened, why, what happened with China in the forty years before her death in nineteen o eight and Mao seizing power in nineteen forty nine. Before her death, the Empress Dowager, who had, who was the the first modernizer, who brought sorry, who brought medieval China into the modern age, and her last project was to start a constitutional, to turn China into a constitutional monarchy. Um, with an elected parliament, she she started um, you know women's liberation in China with a ban on foot binding, and um, then forty years later, China sank into this totalitarian abyss. And what happened in those forty years interested me very much. And this man Sun Yat-sen, who's called the, the father of Republican China or the father of China even, was the man most responsible for why China how, and how China went from the Empress Dowager's time when the beginning of when China was even pursuing democracy to Mao's totalitarian rule. And he was the man most responsible for this. So I, this, I thought I would write a biography of Sun Yat-sen. But after I'd done many, much research and collected many materials, then I got, and I, I, you know, I got bored with Sun Yat-sen. I, I found, I real, I thought that here is another man, bit like Mao. All he wanted was power. And, and he pursued power in a single-minded way and he had no other life. And I thought I didn't want to devote another book to him. And in the meantime, I realized I, I, I got fascinated with his wife. 
red sister Qingling and her sisters, big sister Eileen and little sister Mayling. And they seem to be really extraordinary people. And they, the three sisters and their husbands, Sun Yasian and Chiang Kai-shek, who was the ruler of China before Mao, their lives were the most interesting lives and they both answered my questions of what happened in China in those 40 years and much more, their personalities and so on. So that's how I decided to write the story of the three sisters. And um, now I just wanted to show you some pictures of the, of the sisters. And this is the cover of the book. Now, big sister Eileen on one side, red sister Qingling on the other, with their mother um, who came from the oldest Catholic or Christian families in China. And one of the districts in Shanghai is named after her family. And their father, Charlie Song, also had a very interesting experience or background. He went to America in the late 1970s, basically as a coolie, but then he escaped and ended up in the American South. And he became the first Chinese to be converted by the Southern Methodists. He was in America for seven years, and then he went, then he went, to, went back to China to be a preacher and then a businessman. He made lots of money, and with the money, what he most wanted to do was to give his children an American education. So he sent his three daughters, as well as three sons, to be educated in America. Eileen, big sister, went to America in 1904 when she was 14. She was the first Chinese girl to be educated in America. The other two sisters followed. Um, and with little sister Maiden going to America as young as nine. And she spent 10 years in America. What seemed to me to be extraordinary was that Charlie had this tremendous faith in American society and the, the American Methodists, Methodist circle, um, because these girls were in America when they were very young. They had no adult members of the family to look after them. And they were in America like little sister, mating completely alone. Now, Red sister Qingling came back to China after her education when she was in her early 20s. And her hero was Sun Yasian, this so-called father of China. And she fell in love with him um, because Sun was the first man to advocate republicanism. And she was madly in love with him and she wanted to marry him. But her parents were furiously against the marriage. 
even though they had supported Sun's Republican Revolution. And Sun Yat-sen, as you can see from this picture, is much older, much, much older. He was in his late 40s and when she was in her early 20s. And um, he, had, he was married. He had a wife and many concubines and many other women. And basically he was a womanizer. And so her parents then refused to allow her to marry Sun Yat-sen and locked her up in her bedroom on the upstairs in their house. And she climbed out of the window and boarded a ship and went to Japan and married him there. But that was in 1915. But, but a few years later, she was bitterly disappointed because all Sun Yat-sen wanted was, was his political ambition. And in 1922, the couple were surrounded by the army of Sun's political rival who wanted to drive out Sun. And um, she, she soon fled. Red Sister Qingling volunteered to stay behind to cover Sun Yat-sen's escape. But she didn't know that after her husband arrived in safety, he still didn't want her to leave. He wanted her to be there so the enemy would start a war. And um, so he had an excuse. He would have an excuse to fight back. And she nearly died. She then she escaped um, for two days and two nights when he didn't lift a finger to, to save her. And she had, she suffered a miscarriage during her hellish flight. So she fell out of love after that, but then she decided that she didn't want to divorce him. And instead she wanted to, she wanted to make deal, make, make deals with him. And the deal she most wanted was to emerge in public as a political figure in her own right. And this, I mean, which was unheard of in China in those years. And this was her um, appearing in public with her husband. I mean, you can see she was the only woman there, her husband behind the desk. Um, and she was the first public, you know, public figure, a woman as a public figure. And this was the opening ceremony of the Wang Po Military Academy. And Sun Yat-sen, um, next to the other, on the other side of Sun Yat-sen was Chiang Kai-shek, the head of the military academy. Basically, Sun Yat-sen's ambition was to be the president of China. And in order to achieve this, he brought in the Russians, the Soviet Russians, to sponsor his war against the Beijing government, which was actually a democratically elected government. And um, then he died before he achieved his goal. He died in 1925. And at this point, Chiang Kai-shek decided 
he wanted to drive out the Russians. Chiang Kai-shek was anti-communist. So he, he split from the Russians and drove out the Chinese communists. Now, this was just before Chiang Kai-shek made the move in 1927, when the three sisters were together for the last genuinely happy picture they took together. Qingling, red sister in a dark Chongsan, was a Leninist. She'd been converted by the, Russian, by the Russians to be a Leninist. And, and the other two sisters were passionately against communism. And so when Chiang Kai-shek split from the communists, they were torn apart by the two antagonistic political camps. Little sister Meiling married Chiang Kai-shek in December 1927. And they, this was the Chiangs on their honeymoon. Now, but little sister Meiling, she then sank into depression for seven years. Basically life was Chiang, with Chiang Kai-shek was not she had dreamed of. And Chiang Kai-shek had started his political career as an assassin. He had assassinated Sun Yat-sen's main political rival. And as a result, he became Sun Yat-sen's successor. But as a result, he was pursued by assassins himself. Um, and there were lots of them from every other direction, um, every place in China. And uh, one lot of them got into their bedroom. And as a result of the fright, and little sister Mailing suffered a miscarriage herself and was never able to have children, just like her sister, red sister, Qingling. Now, Chiang Kai-shek, was madly in love with his wife and he wanted to pull her out of depression. So in 1932, he gave her a birthday present, a necklace. But as you can see, it's no ordinary necklace. It encircled a whole mountain. Um, what Chiang Kai-shek did was he had French pine trees imported and planted. And then these foreign trees color in autumn in distinctive way from the local trees. And so they formed this, um, this gorgeous necklace. And the pendant, the jewel of the necklace was a beautiful villa which had green blue tiles on the roof and they sparkle in the sun, just like a real jewel. And big sister Eileen became Chiang Kai-shek's main unofficial political advisor. She was the smartest, according to her little sister, Mei Ling, the smartest of her family. And she 
she also had a fantastic financial mind, and she made her husband, H.H. Kong, Chiang Kai-shek's finance minister and the prime minister for many years, with her being the brain behind the man. And meanwhile, red sister Qingling went into exile in Russia, and in Berlin. And this picture was taken in the Caucasus. And to her left was a man called Deng Yanda, and she fell madly in love with him. Deng Yanda was a very charismatic man with leadership qualities. In fact, while they were in Moscow, Stalin was so impressed with him. Stalin asked him to be the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And he said, you know, he didn't even believe in communism. And uh, so he had to flee Stalin's Russia and he went to uh, Germany. And what Deng Yanda wanted was to form a third party different from the communists and the nationalists. And he became the biggest threat to Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek had, when he, well, he went back to China to form this third party and Chiang Kai-shek had him arrested and secretly executed. And Red Sister Qingling was in love with him um, and um, she was heartbroken and, uh, and she developed this tremendous hate for Chiang Kai-shek and she devoted the rest of her life or the, the future years of her life helping Mao and Stalin to beat Chiang Kai-shek. Now, little sister Mei Ling as Madame Chiang Kai-shek was China's first lady for 22 years, from 1928 when Chiang Kai-shek seized power to 1949 when Mao drove them out of the mainland and, and Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan. This is picture was in 1937 when the war with Japan broke out and she was he's here visiting wounded soldiers. As a wartime first lady in China, from China, she made a triumphant visit to America. Um, I mean, I mean, here she is addressing Congress. And the standing ovation lasted many minutes. And here she is with a bouquet on her laps, and she was about to address a, a crowd of 30,000 at Hollywood Bowl. The man sitting next to her, to her right, David Kung, big sister Eileen's elder son. Big sister Eileen was the only person of the three sisters who had children. And she had four children and she two sons, two daughters. She basically gave two of them to her little sister to be brought up as the children of little sister. And um, so that's David. On the other side, to the other side is Jeanette Mailing's niece, I don't know that you can see her. Um, and she, Jeanette um, was gay. 
very unusual for those years. She didn't try to hide, hide this fact. Instead, she flaunted it. She wore men's hairdo and men's clothes. So in America, President Roosevelt called her my boy. And Meiling and Chiang Kai-shek were at Cairo conference with President Roosevelt and um, Prime Minister Winston Churchill. And the war created a united front. So the three politically divided sisters were back together. Now here they were all in Chongqing, the wartime, China's wartime capital with Chiang Kai-shek. But you can see Red Sister Qingling stood apart from the others. And she also made sure she never smiled in Chiang Kai-shek's presence. Now there are the three brothers with their three wives. So we'll skip them for now. And this is Chiang Kai-shek, Chiang Kai-shek's picture on Tiananmen Gate after the war with Japan ended, the, ended the, the Second World War ended. And Chiang Kai-shek's picture is where Mao's picture is today. But after the war against Japan, a civil war immediately started between Chiang Kai-shek and Mao's communists. And Mao beat Chiang Kai-shek. And this was Chiang Kai-shek in 1949, just before he fled the mainland for Taiwan in his family temple. And you can see Chiang Kai-shek um, in front looking downcast. And to his right, the man wearing a hat was his, his son, Qing Guo, his only blood son. Qing Guo was kept hostage, was taken hostage in Russia when he was 15. He was kept by Stalin and to blackmail Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek desperately wanted his son back. He knew his son was suffering much. Qingguo was in a gulag and you know, suffered tremendously. And so Chiang Kai-shek offered a deal to Stalin. He traded his son's return with the survival of the Chinese communists. So at a time when Chiang Kai-shek could have wiped out the communists in the 1930s, particularly on the long march, he let them go. So as a result, he got his son back, but he eventually lost China. Now, after Chiang Kai-shek died in Taiwan in 1975, Qing Guo became Chiang's successor. It was Chiang Qingguo who started the process for democracy in Taiwan, which it is today. Now, okay, now, um, if I say to go back, at this point when Chiang Kai-shek was in mainland China, and Mei Ling was not with, his, with her husband because she had always wanted to leave Chiang Kai-shek and she stayed in New York and she didn't want to go to Taiwan. Um, but of course she was very torn because um, 
you know, to abandon your husband when he was facing the biggest crisis in his life was bad form. And, um, and she also didn't want to lend a propaganda coup to the communists. So she was very torn and she asked a big sister for advice. And big sister Eileen was, very, was a very devout Christian. And she asked her, her little sister to pray, pray and pray. And so Mayling prayed for months. And then one day, one night, she felt she heard God speaking to her, asking her to go to Taiwan to join her husband. And so she went to Taiwan. And this was she and her husband eating actually under a portrait of her husband. Now, meanwhile, Red Sister Qingling stayed in mainland China and rose to become Mao's vice chair. Here she was with Mao on Tiananmen Gate. And to her, and she was the shorter woman, the taller woman was the prince, Princess Sihanouk, and Sihanouk's, Sihanouk's wife. And next to, on the right-hand side of Qingling is Prime Minister Zhou Enlai. And next to Zhou Enlai is Deng Xiaoping, the post-Mao paramount leader. So you can see how important Red Sister Qingling was in Red China. She lived, she collaborated with Mao through Mao's rule and the, in the Cultural Revolution, which she actually hated, but she didn't speak up. And Mao died in 1976, and this was Mao's memorial service, vast memorial service on Tiananmen Square. And she was the shortest woman supported by a member of her staff. You may notice the gaps in the lineup of the leaders. Well, they were the places for the gang of four, you know, leading by leading and with Mao's wife Jiang Qing as the leader. When the memorial service was held, the gang of four was very much in power. But by the time the picture was published, they had gone, gone to prison. Um, and so the, the, um, the editor, um, there was nothing the editor could do but to hastily re, re, erase their figures, leaving this conspicuous space. Um, okay, Big, Big Sister Eileen's birthday celebrated in Taiwan with a beaming Chiang Kai-shek, who actually had a wonderful time um, in, in Taiwan because Mao was threatening to take Taiwan. America, every time Mao made a threat, America deepened its commitment to defend Taiwan. Um, now, you might wonder wha what Elvis Presley is doing um, in this tale of the three sisters. Well, the lady he was holding is Deborah Paget, who was the leading lady in Elvis's first film, Love Me Tender. 
according to her, Elvis proposed to her, but she turned down the queen, the king, to marry Eileen's younger son, Louis. Now here is um, um, Deborah Paget with me when I was interviewing her in Texas, in Houston, and and she is where she still is. And the man next to her is called Greg. He is her son with Louis, and he is the only, only blood descendant of the three Song sisters. And she, he, had, he had no interest in being the keeper of the sisters' legacy and treasured his privacy above everything else. Now, little sister Eileen died in 2003, having seen three centuries, and this was her aged about 100. Okay, I think that's their story in 25, maybe more minutes. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, Jung, thank you so much. That was... Um... That was just amazing. Um, those pictures are extraordinary. I, when I looked at that picture of um, the Maya Memorial, I thought those gaps are really funny and weird. And now, of course, you've explained it the first time. <laughs> yes. Definitely pictures can tell a lie. Um, so what, what did you think? Did you know about the Sung sisters when you were growing up? Were they a great legend? Were they seen as people of what, what did you think of them? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, they were the most famous sisters in China or in the Chinese-speaking world. They were extremely famous, of course. You know, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Madame Sun Yat-sen, and um, you know, the vice chair of Red China. And of course, we all knew about them. And of course, the stories we were told were, you know, the anti-communists ones mm -hmm. were the villains. And we, when we were children, we were always told that little sister Mayling had beautiful skin because she bathed every day in milk. You know, milk was regarded as the most nutritious thing and which all children should have, but only the privileged few had access to milk. So to bath in milk was the, the most outrageous thing. And um, and so that was her story. And I'm a teacher once tentatively tried to um, to 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 question this myth. And he said, "Do you to us to children? Do you really think bathing in milk was pleasant?" <laughs> and of course, he soon joined the ranks of the condemned rightists. Right. Um, Red Sister Qingling was revered, but I always felt that there was there was one thing very strange, which was we all knew, <clears throat> we all heard the story that she had an affair with her bodyguard, um, and she had stopped being Madame Sun Yat-sen, and the party was only keeping. Giving, let her keep the name as out of consideration or without some kind heart. Um, this, I mean, many people still believe, believe this story today. 
And this is very strange to me because in China, in those years, we heard no gossip whatsoever about the leader's private lives. <clears throat> and she was the only person to be allowed to be gossiped about. Um, and um, now I think, of course, because she was the, uh, the only woman in the communist leadership. And the other thing was because she was relatively independent. And so the story was like a, a thread hanging there. So any minute the party can say she was no longer Madame Sun Yat-sen, therefore she would be open to persecution, you know, the lot. Um, so we, those were the things. I mean, they are the biggest um, legends um, in the Chinese speaking world. And the <clears throat> fact that they, they were women who, in a way, had to exercise their intelligence through men. There mm. was presumably no other way in which they could exert the extraordinary power that they did manage to exert. You, you are absolutely right. You know, um, I mean, that was the time. Um, you know, big sister Eileen was definitely more in, by common, by consensus. She was much more intelligent than her husband. Um, who was, you know, Chiang Kai-shek's prime minister and mm -hmm. finance minister for years and years, a job she, she, she could have had. And also she was definitely, I think, probably more smart than Chiang Kai-shek. Mm -hmm. Of course, she had flaws. She was very corrupt, hugely corrupt, made herself one of the richest women in China through corruption, you know, insider knowledge or policies she made herself. Um, but she was uh, smarter than Chiang Kai-shek. So um, when the civil war started after the Japanese surrender, um, although Chiang Kai-shek seemed still to be at the top of his power, you know, he was hailed as this victor who beat Chiang Kai-shek, but in fact, America beat Chiang, beat, uh, who beat Japan, mm -hmm. he believed that it was her doing, or it was his doing, I'm sorry. He believed that he was the hero who beat the Japanese, when in fact it was America. And, um, and, um, and so he was hugely in delusion. And a big sister, Eileen, never thought he could make it. He could beat Chiang Kai-shek. So both he and Chiang Kai-shek's wife um, lost the faith in Chiang Kai-shek at the beginning, even, of the Civil War. <laughs> so, so what is extraordinary about your book and the way that you write, and I mean, it's true about the Maya biography and obviously about Wild Swans, is that you bring in you know, the personal things that affect gigantic world politics and none more so than the story about Chiang Kai-shek's son and the fact that he, he could not get him back, that he was a pawn and that, you know, you said, you said it quite casually, he lost China because of it. Um, is that really true that, that he could have at that point attacked yes. Mao's troops and won? Yes, yes. Mao's troops were tiny. They were in the thousands or maybe a few tens of thousands. They were tiny. Um, and Chiang Kai-shek 
had to build these fortresses. I mean, you know, during the Long March, I mean, even when we were, John and I were writing about Oakville for Mao, we combed through the whole period. And we found that there were so many times that he really could have wiped out the Red Army, but he let them go. And um, of course, in the Russian archives, there were many documents like this. Mm. They were saying Chiang Kai-shek asked his son back after each critical moment when he let the Red Army go, he would immediately after Mos ask Moscow to release his son. Wow. That was the way he did the deal. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and of course, Moscow every time pretended um, that his son didn't want to come back to China, mm -hmm, which is totally mm -hmm. untrue. Um, until the war against Japan started in 1937, or during that period, just before, you know, when the war was about to start. And Chiang Kai-shek gave the Red Army a terrific deal during the war. Basically, the Red Army didn't have to fight Japan on the front. I mean, they could do some guerrilla warfare behind Japanese lines. And they, they didn't have to take his orders and all that. So the communists were able to build up their strength behind the Japanese line and to develop to, to a position when they could beat Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek had many opponents, armed opponents, before the war against Japan started. I mean, quite a few of them could have replaced Chiang Kai-shek, right. but they all, their armies were all placed under Chiang Kai-shek's command when the war started and their armies were wiped out. And the only army other than Chiang Kai-shek's left was the Red Army. Right. And so Mao was able to, Mao was able to use that army and Russian help to beat Chiang Kai-shek. Extraordinary story. So your books are still banned in China, is that correct? Yes, yes. So what what would the current regime think about this book? What would be their view of the Song sisters now? Well, I mean, any book that doesn't tell the party line is, is, you know, is banned. And the ban has become much more, um, much more, much harsher, much more vigorous in the recent years. I mean, now you could go to jail, you could be arrested for speaking, for saying things like I say in this book, um, and the thing I say about Mao, um, people have been sent to prison mm. for saying much, much less. Um, so uh, what the book is banned, is unavailable. And before there were many, the, the, those banned books were available in Hong Kong. And many people went to Hong Kong to buy banned books. And now, of course, they all but totally disappeared. I mean, as we all know what happened in Hong Kong and even before the current event, I mean, these Hong Kong booksellers had been arrested, mm -hmm. kidnapped, um, and, and sent to prison in mainland China. And so th this route has been sort of a cut off. And of course the internet for a while was a, 
huge source of distribution of information um, uh, in China even, and my books have been you know, scanned, have been people have typed every word into the computer for other people to download. There had been thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of the hits, reads, and, you know, comments. Um, and now they completely wiped out. I mean, the internet has turned out to be the most effective tool of a totalitarian rule. Yeah. That's so scary. Um, I'm going to bring in some questions from some of our audience questions and do keep them coming. I mean, somebody has, in fact, uh, Rhonda has emailed to say, I'm, I'm proud to say that I facilitated your coming to Hong Kong back in 1997, just after the handover to speak at the World Economic Development Congress and share your story with our delegates. And Rhonda wants to know what your message to them would now be in these turbulent times, to people in Hong Kong particularly. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm, I feel very much, I mean, humbled that to say the least, and because seeing how brave they were, and um, and it was just, I'm hugely moved. I'm, I'm now writing, from a safe distance in mm -hmm. Britain, and I, I mean, I have been advised not to go to mainland China, not to go to Hong Kong, and so I'm, I'm safe. I, I think at least you know, I hope. Um, but um, you know, all these millions of people in Hong Kong turning out, you know, in, it was just incredibly moving. You know, when I first went to Hong Kong in the 1980s, um, everybody said the Hong Kongers had no interest in politics. And indeed, when I met um, university professors and writers, they were talking about shares. <laughs> you know, shareholding, which share is completely beyond me. I mean, now to make such that population so, you know, I mean, in a way political, and um, and it was just such a huge transition, and uh, I, I think I'm just full of admiration for them. Yeah, well, it's a it's a really tough story. We've got a couple of questions about the um, the children. I mean, saying that um, Gregory doesn't seem to have much interest in the Sung family. There's also a question about the Yolanda and Yong Yi, who were the adopt well semi adopted children of Chingling, who she, she obviously adored them. And uh, Camilla Costa wants to know what happened to them. And she also wants to know if there's any legacy plans about the sisters, like, will there be a museum? I suppose it would have to be in Taiwan if there was one, but. Well, I mean, it just sat with their, their, their sisters. Well, I said Greg was not interested in being the keeper of the songs of the sisters. Um, I mean, of course, he's, he's interested in his family history and in the, in the stories of the sisters. He just wanted to keep his, he didn't want any demand to put on him. He wanted to be, um, to lead his life. Um, and looking after his mother was the center. I mean, he is still, he's not married. I mean, looking after his mother is the center of his life. Now, the other two um, women who were adopted by Red Sister Qingling, 
had you know, very interesting stories themselves. Um, just, just one of them yeah. was, was their treatment um, when Red Sister Qingling died. Um, they were they were not um, they were not allowed or they still they are not they are not sort of officially recognized and this was only slightly to do with the fact that there was no formal procedure to adopt them she just adopted them she she they were the daughters of her favorite bodyguard and who mm -hmm. was the co-victim in this, in this rumor about her affair. You know? and, but, but, I mean, she, but she treated him really like her son. I mean, she was very broken by the fact that she could never have children again because she adored children. She, so she treated their father like her son. And then when then, then, then these two daughters and she brought them up, um, because their own life was quite miserable mm -hmm. in, the, in the famine and starvation and so on. So she brought them up and she doted on them. And she, instead of wanting them to call her grandmother, which was other people, what other people asked the two daughters, the two girls to call her, she wanted them to call her mother. I mean, here was always this sort of void of wanting to be a mother, and they failed that. Now, when she died, the two girls and the Beijing <clears throat> made the big thing of inviting all Qingling's relatives to come from overseas to China to, to pay her uh, last respect. Um, but they all said, they all re responded with a resounding no, with, with a resounding silence, including, you know, little sister mm -hmm. mailing. Um, so Beijing made a big deal about the, the family, but they didn't allow these two women to appear in public as her adopted daughter. And this was, um, this was because these two daughters were not Songs. They had nothing to do with the Songs and the Chiang Kai-shek and the whole lot. And Beijing made a big deal about Qingling's family because they want to use that to take Taiwan, mm -hmm. to bring Taiwan under its fold. But the two sisters had no blood relationship with, with, the, with Chiang Kai-shek and, and Taiwan and you know, whatever. So they were completely brushed aside as non-people. Non um, Anyway, so today I think one of them, Yolanda. Yolanda is the first kind of good time girl in China. When China, when, with you know, the, I don't want to go into the details, but she was the, she was really loving every minute of it with her you know beautiful clothes. When China began to have these going to restaurants and bars, you know whatever, using makeup and all that, and she she was frank about. And she became a, a film star, not a star, film actress. Mm -hmm. And she still lives in China. And the other sister, Yongjie, um, was um, left China she, after Qingling's death and, um, and completely 
unheard of. I mean, nobody's, um, nobody knows what's happened to her. I mean, she never returned to China. And you were never able to find her? No, I, I wasn't. I mean, everybody I asked um, Fascinating. said no. So we're coming towards the end of the time, but I, I've got one question and it's a question I want to ask too, which is the father, Charlie Sung, do you think, I mean, it was such an extraordinary thing to send your daughters off so far away at, you know, one of them at the age of nine to not see them for more or less 10 years. What do you think he wanted for them? Was he proud of them? She, they want, he wanted them to, um, to benefit from American education and American society and to turn China into a country that is more like America. And the seven years in America had made him really adore that country. And so he did see that his, if he educated his daughters like that, they might be able to have an influence mm -hmm. on China. Yes, very well, they much. They certainly very did. Much. Well, they certainly did. You know, I think the big sister, Eileen's um, influence um, and, and Mei-Ling's influence um, on Chiang Kai-shek was definitely noticeable and they certainly made Chiang Kai-shek's rule more humane, I mean better, I mean he was a dictator but yeah. he was not as bad, nearly as bad as Mao and he was not as bad as he might have been without the sisters. They so that, that, converted him, sorry, they converted sorry. him, they converted yeah. to Christianity and that was very important. I mean, to be, the uh, Chiang Kai-shek became quite devout as well. I mean, to become a Christian and to want to be like America, to want to make friends with America. And those two are the biggest constraints on um, someone who could otherwise be a really awful dictator. And do you think that that's, one of the biggest parts of their legacy that they were able to make that part of the relationship happen yes i think that's very important in fact that is so important i think it it is in a way relevant to how taiwan could become a democracy after chiang kai-shek died Mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, Qingguo, there was all this, and what Chiang Kai-shek was like, um, the fact that, you know, as I said, he was Christian, but most importantly, he wanted to be friends with America. I mean, the ground was there, um, and, um, and that's all relevant to this only democracy among, the, you know, in the Chinese speaking world. So as the last question, Jung, because a lot of people have asked questions like this in various forms, um, in particular, Stephanie Williams, I mean, saying, with your perspective, how do you see the future of China now? Do you feel optimistic, um, pessimistic, worried? Um, well, the thing is, I, I, I'm now more hesitant than ever to predict the future because I didn't foresee that China had turned to, it, to what it is today. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't think it would become what it is under Mr. Xi. I didn't, I didn't foresee somebody like Mr. Xi to come to power. I mean, now China is at its most repressive since Mao's death after these decades. And, um, and it's sort of, um, it's, it's bent on beating American to be the dominant world power in a nasty way, in a communist way. Um, so I didn't foresee that. So I can't re- think about the, can't predict the future. But uh, what I have, can see is China, there is a period of China, which I, I'm glad to say I discovered writing this book, when China was a functioning democracy. Mm-hmm. This was between 1912, when the Republic was founded, to 1928, when Chiang Kai-shek seized the power using Soviet-built military machine. And in those 16 years, China had elections and the government were elected. There there were functioning parliaments and the independent legal system was in progress and complete freedom of speech, press freedom. I mean, the great, the giants of modern China in literature, arts, and many other areas were, were from this period. And this was the golden period of China. I mean, the economy was doing fantastically well. And so, so democracy worked um, in China. Um, as we can see, democracy is working in Taiwan. So there is that. Um, it's, um, and then some people say somehow democracy doesn't suit China. I, I, just, I just don't believe that. But I then I have also have to say that after communist rule, Mao's rule, um, I think probably now it's even more difficult. It's more difficult to turn China into a democracy than a hundred years ago. Goodness, that's not very, um, that's not very cheery. <laughs> um, well, I mean, no, but I mean, I don't no. want to end in a pessimistic note. I mean, I'm, this no, is it's very realistic. myself. I mean, I, um, before not having um, foreseen what China would um, be like, would turn out, but I think, um, on the other hand, you know, things with this, um, with this uh, kind of regimes, you never know what's happening mm-hmm. behind, the behind, scenes, the behind the scenes. And you never know. I mean, the changes are all very sudden. Um, and um, even, you know, great change. I mean, you know, earth shattering changes. Um, and by the time they happened, the, we know they were, they happened. So I don't know, I, you know, I don't know what's happening. I hope, I hope positive things are happening. And I hope the country would uh, take a turn um, for the, for the, for the better. And I do hope, you know, I, I do most since most fervently believe that democracy really works for China, as I see researching this book, I may see this golden period. And I really do hope that it will come back to that. Um, 
to that again. And you know, with you know the three sisters story. I mean, they are what they are, as they're also partly the product of yes. that period. Yes. Um, even in the Cultural Revolution, even with her collaboration with Mao and Red Sister had maintained a level of uh, humanity yeah. um, and a sense of repentance, a sense of guilt for what she was doing. Um, and uh, uh, I'm not giving it for No, but it's, it's very interesting that, you know, that they, they couldn't have been what, what they are if they hadn't in a way being alive and coming of age in that particular period when it was okay for Charlie Soong to say, I'm going to educate my daughters in America. And boy, what an education they got. So, Yong, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us thank from you. Rome. Um, it's a wonderful book, everybody. Please buy it. There's details <laughs> online. And thank you to all the people who've joined us, hundreds of you out there, and to everyone whose questions we couldn't get to. Um, I hope that you got lots of things and you got lots of lovely messages from on the message machine saying how wonderful you are and how much people have enjoyed it. So it's fantastic to see you again. And uh, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. And good night to you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>